0: Hello, and welcome to the 5 by your favorite Fast Fresh 5 board game review podcast. We have a fabulous episode for you this week, starting with Ruel and Raiders of the North Sea. Next, I'm racing to give you my thoughts on Snowtails, Sarah can't help but share banned books with you, Meeple Lady goes true old school with backgammon, and last but certainly not least, Christy illuminates us with that je ne sais quoi that makes up Orléans.
1: As a Viking looking to impress your chieftain, you work to gather resources and assemble a crew. Once your crew is ready, you'll travel the North Sea to raid outposts, monasteries, and fortresses. Can you score enough plunder, offerings, and victory points to be declared the winner? Friends, this is Ruel Gaviola. Let's look at Raiders of the North Sea, along with the Hall of Heroes expansion, and the recently released Solo Companion app for Android and iOS. Designed by Sham Phillips, with art by Mahaljo Dmitrievsky, and originally released in 2015 by Garfield Games, Raiders of the North Sea is published by Renegade Game Studios, who provided me with a review copy of the base game and the expansion. Raiders of the North Sea was previously reviewed by Sarah in episode 50 and Ruth in episode 28. For this review, I'm covering the expansion Hall of Heroes and the Raiders Solo Companion app. In this worker placement game, you'll use the cleverly designed mechanism of placing one worker in a location to perform an action, then taking another worker from a different location to perform that action. You'll assemble your crew of warriors and gather enough provisions to sail off for a raid. All raids will net you plunder that varies from location to location, but the strength of your crew will determine your number of victory points. You'll also receive either a gray or white worker, which changes some of your actions and also allows you to work in different areas for new actions. After one of three game-end conditions is met, all players receive a final turn and the most points wins. Raiders of the North Sea adds a clever twist to the worker placement genre with its place-one-take-one mechanism. I love how easy this is to explain to new gamers, and my regular gaming group enjoyed this from the get-go. I'd rate Raiders as slightly more complex than Stone Age, which is one of my favorite gateway worker placement games. Add in one or both of the expansions, though, and Raiders of the North Sea becomes a much more dynamic worker placement game. It retains the place-one-take-one mechanism, but you'll get more actions and different ways to score points than the base game. I've played both expansions, and I prefer the Hall of Heroes. It blends seamlessly with the base game by adding a new location, the Mead Hall, to the bottom of the board. It also offers new townsfolk cards and provides spaces for them to be drawn from the Mead Hall. This option helps protect you from bad card draws in the base game's gatehouse action. Here you'll choose one of three face-up townsfolk and receive either coin or mead, which is another welcome element. Before you raid, you can give that mead to your crew. Nothing like a little glicker courage before going into battle. For each mead token you assign, you'll receive an extra military strength. Like other resources, though, you're allowed to only hold up to 8 mead. Finally, you can go on quests in Hall of Heroes. After location has been raided, its space is filled with a random quest tile. To fulfill a quest, you discard cards from your hand that meet the required quest's military strength. You'll immediately gain a reward in the form of plunder and or silver, and you place the tile above your player board, which is another new addition from the Hall of Heroes expansion. Those tiles you collect earn you points based on how many total tiles you've collected, and, if you're the first to collect a set of 3 of 1 type, you earn a reputation tile bonus. It's a nice bit of set collection scoring, and I highly recommend the Hall of Heroes expansion for Raiders fans. For months, I'd been unsuccessful at tracking down a copy of the original solo variant for Raiders of the North Sea. Thankfully, Garfield Games announced the Companion app, and I snagged a copy for $1.49 US. It's been totally worth it since I can now play a solo game of Raiders, While there is a Raiders of the North Sea game on Steam, I'm old school. I prefer fiddling with cards, dice, and chits, and with the companion app, I'm able to play a game of Raiders all by myself at the tabletop. What I love about the solo game is that it's a slightly different challenge that maintains the regular playstyle of the original. However, the virtual opponent does things differently. They'll either raid or gain provisions, armor, or an offering tile. To raid, they must have the required armor and provisions, then they'll score victory points. If not, then they'll gain provisions, armor, or an offering tile, and they will block off one worker space that you cannot use on your next turn. This simple yet effective solo variant is a lot of fun. Your virtual opponent usually gets out to a big lead in victory points, but as you start to ramp up, you'll close the gap. Best of all, the companion app smoothly integrates the expansions into the game. Whether you're playing with Fields of Fame and or Hall of Heroes, it's easy to play a solo game with a companion app. Simply set up like a two-player game, place your device down on the table, start the app, and take your first turn. After each of your turns, tap on the app and you'll be raiding in no time. Thanks to Renegade Game Studios for the review copy of the Raiders of the North Sea base game and the Hall of Heroes expansion. This has been Ruel Gaviola for the 5 by Thanks for listening. Find me on Twitter at Ruel Gaviola. That's R-U-E-L-G-A-V-I-O-L-A
0: up, I'd heard of the Iditarod, the annual dog sled race way up in Alaska. And of course, a kid growing up in the South would be taken by the idea of sled dogs rushing across frozen paths of snow and ice, howling gale force winds and blizzards. Hey, it's not my fault my school made us read To Build a Fire and Call of the Wild. So back when I was newer into modern board games and thought a collection should be quote-unquote well-rounded, I struggled with finding a racing game that caught my interest. Car racing was never really my thing, but dog sleds... Dog sleds I could get behind. So when Snow Tales came out in 2008, it really piqued my interest. Sadly, though, that early, limited, self-published edition by designers Gordon and Fraser Lamont as Fragor Games was out of my reach. Luckily, I wasn't the only one intrigued by this unique theme, and a couple of reprints later, I was finally able to pick up a 2015 Renegade Games edition. Snow Tales puts you in the frozen boots of a musher, lining up with your two most trusty dogs and willing to risk it all to cross that finish line first. Okay, only two dogs because that makes gameplay simpler. The first step in any good game of Snowtails is negotiation over the track layout. Sure, you could follow the suggested layouts in the rulebook, but what's the fun of that? Generally, my son is the track builder in our family, but there's always room for a little negotiation on length, curves, and obstacle placement. You want a long, fast stretch at the end to blow past the finish line? Or something that requires a little more finesse. Once the track is built, everyone lines up their sleds with starting pre-printed Strength 3 Dogs and 3 Break, and draws five cards into their hands. As with actual mushing, I assume, the goal to winning a dog sled race is balance, finesse, and occasional reckless abandon. Anytime your combined dog values exceed your break value, your sled moves forward. That's really the main gist of the game. Everything else is details. At the start of each player's turn, they choose which cards they wish to play. They can play one to three cards, but all cards must have the same number on them. You can play cards to the dogs, affecting how strongly they pull and in which direction, or a card to the brake to speed up or slow down your sled. Again, anytime your combined dog values exceed your brake value, your sled moves forward. So if you have two value three dogs and a three brake, then that's six minus three, or three spaces forward. But if you have 2 value 2 dogs and a value 4 or greater break, well, then you're dead in the water. Which may be the choice you want to make that turn because you must play at least one card for each round. And sometimes that's your best option as other cards would send you off the track or pass a speed check at way too fast of a speed. Because doing either would cause damage to your sled. Damage is a nice and simple concept in Snow Tails. If your sled takes damage, you take one of your damage cards and add it to your hand. Now you have fewer playable cards and so fewer choices. Damage decreases your options and flexibility. The other type of damage is crashing into an opponent's sled, at which point you end your turn and do not get to redraw up to 5. Sometimes you'll want to do this intentionally, but often it'll be on accident. The other movement type is when you have your dogs pulling with different power values. This causes your sled to drift between lanes. This is important because there are obstacles and curves on the track that you must steer through. The difference in power between the dogs affects how many lanes you move during your normal forward movement. For instance, if you have a forward movement of four, but your dogs are a five and a three, then you drift two lanes as part of that movement. You get to pick when, but you must complete as much diagonal drift as possible during your forward movement. Drifting is cool, but what your dogs really want to be is in harmony. Pulling with the same strength. When your dogs are in balance, then you get extra movement at the end of your normal movement phase. You get extra spaces equal to your current position, so it's a great catch-up mechanism. Okay, so that's how the game is played, but how does it feel? Well, I've never mushed a dog sled. But Snow Tails is a tense, stressful experience, with only so much planning one can manage to do. The hand limit of 5 can really hamper what you're trying to accomplish, but there are multiple ways to get what you want. Want to go faster? You could play two higher-strength dogs, or you could decrease your break. Adding one high-value dog would give you more movement, but would also make you drift. Is that okay? These are the questions you'll be asking yourself each turn, trying to figure out what cards to play and which to save for next turn to keep yourself from crashing. When should you pour on the speed for a round or two, and when should you slam on the brake hard? If you play two fives, you're going to fly, but that might not be a good thing depending upon if there are curves or a tree coming up. Mushing can be difficult to balance correctly, yet the underlying mechanism is so simple my son grasped the basics at a pretty young age and has been playing it with me for years. Snowtails is a tight, tense, thematic, and most importantly, fun racing game that my family enjoys. The whole experience from gameplay to components has been top-notch in my personal experience with it. If you're an Iditarod fan, a dog fan, or a race fan, I recommend you give it a try. Until next time, if you have any questions or comments about Snowtails, you're welcome to reach out to me on Twitter. At Mike Grizzly.
2: I'm not going to start this review with the words in these uncertain times because I'm really tired of hearing the words in these uncertain times. But the truth is, with things the way they are right now, I don't often have the energy or focus for a big, heavy game. Those games are great. I love them, and I'm looking forward to enjoying them again someday. But games that take hours of time and intense concentration, I'm just not up for that at the moment. I need a game that will give me a fun mental break, something that will help me relax and unwind after a day of video calls for work. A gaming snack. And that's where Band Books comes in. Designed by Jason Tagmeyer and published in 2018, Band Books is part of the Wallet game series by Buttonshy, who specialize in micro card games that are easy to set up and learn and are so small they fit in a tiny plastic wallet. Band Books is a solo game, and while I play solo games all the time, I'm especially glad to have a new one right now. The best thing about banned books is that, like all Buttonshy games, it's priced for the budget of These Uncertain Times, quote-unquote. You can get the physical game for $12 from the publisher's website, ButtonshyGames.com, or you can get a print-and-play from PNP Arcade for $3. I don't normally do a lot of print-and-play because, to be honest, I just don't have the time for it. I'd rather spend my gaming time playing games than printing and trimming cards. But Banned Books is a good print-and-play game because it's a micro-game. There are very few cards to print and trim. You do need to provide a few additional components to play Banned Books. 1D6 and 11 tokens. This makes Banned Books less portable than the other button-shy wallet games I've played. But since I won't be taking Banned Books or any games with me anywhere for the time being, it's not a concern. For the tokens, you can use coins, beads, Lego, cubes from another game, whatever. I have some dry erase tokens that I can label, so that's what I use, but they can be anything. Gameplay in banned books is simple. You play a character from a book that has been banned at some point in the U.S. Atticus Finch, Huckleberry Finn, and so forth. There are three adversaries, the powers that be, trying to stop you from... Well, to be honest, I'm not exactly sure what you and the powers that be are supposed to be doing. I have to say that the theme in banned books is quite thin. When I play, I don't feel like I'm doing anything related to books. You play a character from a book, but all that means is that you have a card in front of you with that character's name and picture. There's nothing in the mechanisms to ground banned Books in its theme. It's basically an abstract game. In fact, the only way band Books reminds me of classic literature is in its lack of diversity. There are ten characters to choose from. There's Alice from Alice in Wonderland, there's Celie from The Color Purple, and all the rest are white men. I can see that focusing on classic literature boxed them into being undiverse, since diversity in literature has been so long overlooked. But in a game that's about banned books, it's kind of a bummer that the game almost entirely excludes the people who have been unofficially banned from the canon. It would have been easy to do better. In some cases, they could have used the same book. The a Mockingbird card could have been Scout or Tom instead of Atticus. And if The Color Purple was really the only banned book with non-white characters they'd heard of, a quick Google for banned books by black authors, banned books by Latino authors, banned books about women, would have given them a wealth of material. But setting all that aside and treating banned books as an abstract game, how is the gameplay? You have these three powers that be cards, and each one has a numbered track on it. You also have five cards showing different actions you're allowed to take, like moving your tokens forward on the tracks, slowing the powers that be down, or using a special character-specific ability. Each round, you roll a die to see which of the powers that be advance their tokens. Your goal is to advance two of your tokens to the end of the track before two of the powers that be do. Each time you use an action, you have to flip it over and it can't be used again until you take the flip action, which flips all your action cards back over and readies them for use. I found myself wanting to wait as long as possible before doing this to make the flip action more effective. But the catch is that the more cards you have flipped over, the more likely the powers are to activate. I love the push-pull balance of trying to move your tokens forward as fast as possible, against the defensive goal of slowing the powers that be down as much as possible. I've also enjoyed trying out different characters, seeing which abilities work best for me. i found that some of the characters are easier to play than others, and you could choose a character you found less powerful to make the game more of a challenge. You can also adjust the powers that be to ramp up the difficulty level. Although, to be fair, Ban Books is never going to be that different from play to play. That's okay. It doesn't need to be. Not every game has to be a magnum opus. Bandbooks Books does one thing and does it well. It's a gaming snack. A quick tactical solo game that hits the spot when you need a little break from everything. And that's Ban Books. My name is Sarah. Look me up on Twitter at Sarah Especially if you know of more fun little solo games, then I really want to hear from you.
3: Every so often I'm watching a movie or TV show and a backgammon set shows up. I immediately pause the program to examine whether they're playing correctly or it's just being used as a prop. For myself personally, Backgammon, for many, many years, was just a game that existed. A game that many people always randomly had in their house, probably a gift from their grandparents or a friend. It's a game I'm surprised that a lot more people don't know how to play, considering how old it is. It's ancient, with its roots tracing back nearly 5,000 years in Mesopotamia. I finally learned to play the game as an adult, and it's been one of my absolute favorites ever since. I keep a set in my car so I can bust it out at any time, and people, I have. Backgammon is a classic two-player game that combines strategy and luck. It's played on a board, often built into a mini little suitcase, and two players sit across from each other. Each player has 15 pieces, also known as checkers, two dice in their matching color, and a dice cup, players must move all their checkers around the board in one direction into their home area, which then they can start bearing off the pieces. The problem is, your opponent is moving in the opposite direction and can hit you, forcing your checker to start its journey home all over again by entering at your opponent's home board, which is the farthest area from your home board. When you open your case, you'll see that the board is made up of 24 points, which look like long skinny triangles and the board is divided into four quadrants. For the purposes of this review, I'll call the points spaces instead, so it doesn't sound like we're constantly talking about victory points this entire time. Checkers sit on a space and move in a horseshoe pattern around the board. Your home board is the set of six spaces closest to you, and your opponent plays the mirror image of the same board. Each quadrant on the board has exactly six spaces each. There is a standard setup for the checkers at the start of the game, Then players begin by rolling one die each, and the player with the higher die goes first. They move their piece or pieces exactly according to what's rolled in one direction toward their home board. For example, if a two and four were rolled, the player moves one piece two spaces and another piece four spaces, or they may move the same piece two spaces and then four spaces. To be able to move into a space, it has to be empty, or it has to have your checkers sitting in it, Or just have one checker of your opponent sitting in it. If there are two or more checkers of your opponent sitting in that space, it is blocked and you cannot land there. If there is one checker sitting there that belongs to your opponent and you decide to move in, their piece gets knocked off and goes to the bar, which is usually the middle fold of the case. Your opponent must then roll into an open space in your home board, which has their starting spaces. On future turns, players take turns back and forth, plopping their two matching dice into their dice cup and rolling. Players continue until one person bears off all their checkers from their home board. A player cannot start bearing off their checkers until they're all in their home board. And even then, the player must be able to roll high enough to get them off the board. The first player to complete this is the winner. There is a lot of back and forth in this game, and while it's true that a couple of bad rolls could set you far behind, there is strategy in how you move your pieces. You want to move them in pairs so that no one checker is sitting by itself, practically inviting your opponent to come hit you. You also need to understand when to make a run for it, moving all your checkers past your opponent. Sometimes it's advantageous to keep a few behind so that you can hit your opponent when the opportunity presents itself. There's also something to be said about building a wall of defense in your home board so that if you do hit an opponent's piece, they will have a hard time rolling into their starting area because you've blocked off so many of their opening spaces. There's also the thing about doubles. Rolling doubles will result in four actions of the same number. For example, a roll of two sixes is very powerful because you get six points of movement four times. Most of the game are hoping for doubles while taunting your opponent by rage-shaking your dice cup near their face. It's very fun. For those who want to raise the stakes, try using the doubling cube. The doubling cube is a marker representing what the two players are betting. It begins at 64 at the start of the game, and when one player is feeling lucky in their progress, they can move it to 2. Meaning, if they're playing for dimes, the winner will now be receiving 20 cents instead. The other player can agree to the 2 or just end the game and pay the 10 cents. The doubling cube signs double from 2 to 4, to 8 to 16, to 32 to 64. Players have to take turns increasing the doubling cube. The same player cannot keep raising the stakes of the game. If your opponent wins the game and you haven't taken a single checker off the board, you've been gammoned, and this doubles the stakes. If your opponent wins and you still have a checker on the bar or in the home board of your opponent, then you've been backgammoned, and this triples the stakes. I've seen some epic games where someone has been backgammon and paid a hefty sum to the winner. In all, backgammon is a quick, fun, two-player game that's easily transportable and can pretty much play anywhere. It has a self-contained playing area with its suitcase setup. It's also very easy to find an inexpensive coffee and chances are there are even a few sets at goodwill. Just make sure all 15 checkers are included. And that's backgammon. This is Meeple Lady for the 5 Buy. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as Meeple Lady or on my website, BoardGameMeepleLady.com. May you always roll doubles, and I'll see you at the bar. Thanks for listening. Bye!
4: One of my favorite aspects of board gaming is the tactile element of sitting down at a table and handling a bunch of bits, rolling dice, moving meeples, and so on. Pulling stuff out of a bag adds suspense, and in a game such as Orléans, it allows you to use a deck-building-esque mechanism without having to frequently shuffle small numbers of cards throughout the game. Similar to The Quacks of Quedlinburg, which was reviewed by Ruth in episode 52, you can manage your pool of discs and therefore your odds of being able to do different things in the game. But rather than the press-your-luck context of Quacks, Orléans offers a variety of typical Eurogame trappings. Orléans is designed by Reiner Stockhausen and published by Tasty Minstrel Games. The art is by Clemens Franz. The setting of the game is medieval France. It has a map that you can travel around on by land or sea, picking up goods of different types and values and building trading posts as you go. There is a development track, aka the book track, that functions as a victory point generator, and there is a variety of buildings you can build to get different actions that are available only to you. The characteristic bits in the game are these colored tokens that represent different types of villagers such as merchants, knights, farmers, monks, and so on. Each player has their own personal player board in front of them. In order to take actions in the game, you pull villager tokens out of your bag and place them in front of you in various combinations. Fulfilling a combination on your board allows you to take the corresponding action, and for some of those actions you also get a matching token to add to your bag. Possible actions include getting money, making actions easier by placing a gear over a token space on your board, building buildings that get you special actions, traveling around on the map, building a trading post, going up on the development track, and increasing the number of tokens you're able to pull from your bag each turn. There is also an action that allows you to slim down your bag by exchanging your surplus tokens for various bonuses. This becomes important late in the game when you have lots of extra tokens, as some of the bonuses are important for end-game scoring. Your score on the development track is used as a multiplier for the number of trading stations you've built and also the number of these little citizen tiles you've collected throughout the game. The citizen tiles come from the development track, the exchange of surplus tokens, and from acquiring villagers. Money is also important in the game, as the ratio of coins to victory points is actually 1 to 1. Ultimately, Orléans is about the synergy you can develop between the stuff you're doing in front of you and the stuff you're doing on the main board. You want to manage your bag of tokens and your board improvements so that you're able to go around and take lots of efficient actions. Even though some turns will be less exciting than others, I've found that I'm usually able to complete the requirements for at least one action each turn. I appreciate that it always feels like I'm able to do something to advance myself in the game, as opposed to other games that require a lot of planning in order to avoid getting stuck. There is a great puzzly aspect to the basic mechanism of pulling out however many tokens and figuring out what combinations you can make that turn, as well as how those combinations might fit into a larger strategy. I enjoy the art by Clemens Franz. The small villager tokens are especially well done, and the colors are easy to distinguish, which is awesome. I would have liked to see more diversity among the different types of villagers, who all appear to be men. That said, there is not room for a ton of detail on these tokens. The citizen tiles are double-sided, with one male side and one female side. Orléans is generally best with 4 and also playable with 3. I have not tried it with two, and while I'm sure it would work, it seems like some of the mechanisms are mainly intended for more than two. The only mode in the base game is competitive group play, but the Orléans Invasion expansion offers both cooperative play and solo play. Speaking of solo play, since Orléans gives you your own player board and requires you to combine tokens in order to take actions, some folks might think of it as multiplayer solitaire. It definitely gives you your own puzzle to chew on and will appeal to people who are looking for that sort of thing. There is competition on the map with the trading posts, on the development track, and through the bonuses given in exchange for your surplus tokens. That's sufficient interaction for my taste, but it does involve a good amount of looking at your own board. The arrangement of your tokens on your board is usually done simultaneously by all players, but occasionally your decisions might depend on what someone else is doing. Sometimes this can result in confusion over whether players can look at each other's boards during this phase, but the rulebook clarifies that placement may be done in turn order in such cases. I only mention this because it tends to come up in most games. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at d6cmarie. Thanks for listening and stay well.
1: This has been the 5 by your 5-stop shop for rapid-fire board game reviews. Follow us on Twitter at 5 bygames like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash five by games. Join our BGG guild number two eight one zero. Listen to us on Apple podcasts, Stitcher, Google play, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts and check out our website at five bygamescom If you like what we do here on the five by and want to support our work, visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash five by games. Thanks for listening and happy gaming.
2: The Five By is part of the Inside Voices Network. Find more of our great content, like Great Way Games, at InsideVoicesNetwork.com.